What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello and welcome to the Overdue Podcast, Episode 25. I'm Kelly, and with me today is one of our South Campus librarians, Brandon. Hello. And our guest today is Madison College History Instructor, Jonathan Pollock. Hey. Welcome. Thanks. And Jonathan, you have the distinction of being um, our any previous guest to to rejoin us for a second time. So awesome. <laughs> we thank you for oh, that. I'm I guess proud. we scared everyone else off. Oh, this is, this is a great <laughs> podcast. They don't know what they're missing. <laughs> All right. All right. So today on the podcast, we have our second part in our 50th anniversary celebration of the summer of 69. Uh, if you remember on our last podcast, we discussed the 50th anniversary of the moon landing in July of 1969. And today we're going to talk about another momentous event, which took place in August of that year. The Woodstock Music and Arts Festival was billed as three days of peace and music. Ticket prices for all three days cost $18 in advance, (laughs) I love that, and $24 at the gate. Um, And that is about $120 uh, and $160 in today's dollars. Based on advanced sales of about $180,000, the organizers planned food and facilities for $200,000. But that's not what happened, was it? So as we know, about... I guess the final estimates were 450,000 people showed up. The population of Minneapolis, so it's as, as if Minneapolis <laughs> decided <laughs> to go for yeah. three days, yes, in the in a farm, in a field. Much and more has been um, written and remembered about the inconveniences, rain, of course, tremendous amounts of mud, lack of food, proper facilities, bad acid, and traffic. (laughs) (laughs) And at the time, there were few reporters on the scene, and those that were there emphasized the problems and not the musical performances. Um, So that's kind of what I wanted to get started talking about was performances. Um, Does anybody have any memories of a favorite performance um, in the documentary? Uh, Favorite performance? I kind of like the Who in the documentary. Because Pete Townsend's kind of like getting people out of there. It's, it's kind of amusing. Um, I think that's, that's kind of my favorite one out of the documentary. Okay. I'm a big Jimi Hendrix fan, so I anytime know. I see oh, Jimi sure. play, I'm just I'm spellbound. Yeah, the, ori- the original cool cat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, the other one I like is, uh, is the Shanana performance. Oh. <laughs> okay, that was, that's my most awkward moment. <laughs> what, what's, okay, what's awkward about Shanana? Well, it just it just didn't fit with the other music that was being performed. So this is I, I was thinking about that. I was this is actually like a, a lot of my my preparation for this was like a kind of extended meditation on Shanana, and <laughs> so what I was thinking about is like it, it's the same thing. They seem so incongruous, and and I think part of it is like how how do we divide musical genre? And I mean, this is, it's, it's an elastic process. I mean, right. you know, when you're, you know, if you're, if you're a music fan and, and by your presence being here, I'm guessing you are to, yes. to various degrees, you know, you spend a lot of time talking about like the, the best artist, the best group in this particular genre. Um, and the thing is they, they like change over time. I mean, you know, within my own lifetime, uh, I really started listening to music around 1980, maybe late seventies, a little bit like systematically. And I'm amazed that if I turn on, like, classic rock stations, there's all this 80s stuff on there. Right. And even there, if I'm listening to, like, an 80s station, it's, like, The Cure and Def Leppard, like, right after each <laughs> right. other. And I'm like, I lived through the 80s. Nobody was listening to both those groups simultaneously. Correct. Just nobody. It wasn't right. done. And so I think, in a way, like, that same kind of thing is going on with Shana Na. That okay. The first of all, what I find weird about it is that, so they're, so Shana Na, for people who aren't familiar... <laughs> Um, they're a uh, kind of a pioneering 50s revival group. Right. Uh, the doo-wop. The doo-wop group. Yeah, yeah the doo-wop era in particular. And um, 
And so doo-wop kind of emerged like in the early 1950s, kind of early rock and roll. So in other words, like roughly 15 years before, uh, before Woodstock took place. Okay. And so it's not that far apart. I mean, you know, True. We, I, I know you mentioned you're going to talk that in the 50th anniversary Woodstock, there are certainly bands playing that had maybe their peak like 15 years ago, right? like in the early 2000s, and that doesn't seem super out of place. Um, and, but so for the, for the people at Woodstock, what I also find interesting about it is like, I, I might've talked about this the last time I was on your podcast. One of my big obsessions is like the history of nostalgia. Okay. And like the role of nostalgia in American culture. And so already you've got this festival where the target age of people there is probably like early 20s, right? I mean, there's right. a few older people sure. going and maybe a Some few teenagers, kids, teenagers yeah. would have wound up there. But it's mostly like people in their early 20s. Um, and Shanana are like totally a nostalgia act. Okay. And, you know, case in point, my parents who were born in 42, so like a little bit older, a little bit old for the Woodstock generation, they've been 27 that summer. Uh, they had, you know, one kid and another one on the way. Yeah. Um, they're not the Woodstock target audience, like, at all. <laughs> um, and, like, it was, like, I think the first concert I remember them going to was Shanana. Really? Like, they okay. bought Shanana records. They were, like, super into it. <laughs> so it's, like, it's people having nostalgia for young people having nostalgia for being really young. Okay. I can and see that. And so I think that's kind of what they're doing in okay. there. Okay. Um, but I think it's really interesting because, like, Shanana, you know, like you said, it's sort of, uh, they're kind of the outlier of, of yeah. music we think of. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Ravi Shankar is kind of an outlier also. <laughs> um, which I, I've, like, more, more, I have more thoughts about Ravi Shankar. We can get to that okay. later in the, in the podcast. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, like, Shanana, I think it's just fascinating that they're up there. Okay. I, it just, it feels weird. Uh, the gold lame suits and the, <laughs> yeah. the dancing, it just, it just didn't really fit. And I remember watching it like in high school and thinking, this is so weird. Why are they here? And this, this must be a joke. And, but, and I still feel the same, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I understand what you're saying though. Yeah. Um, and another thing that I, I still agree with my, I stick to my original opinion of um, Joe Cocker. Mm-hmm. I do not appreciate the musical stylings of Joe Cocker. Cannot figure out what the deal is with Joe Cocker. <laughs> I, know, I like Joe Cocker. Okay. okay, go, Brandon. Go. Oh, why? why? Because I came of age at a time when The Wonder Years was on, and that was the oh, theme song to The Wonder Years. Oh. And I also know the Beatles version. And I, but I knew it after the Joe Cocker version. Okay. Right. So I find that for me, oftentimes, if I know a song in cover first, like Jimi Hendrix's All Along the Watchtower, I knew yeah. before I knew the Dylan one. Okay. Even today, I've heard the Dylan one a million times, but it's weird because the Jimmy one is the one I know. Well, that, was, so that was one of the things that struck me when I was kind of looking over. The, so I went to the Woodstock 50 website, and I was kind of yeah. playing around on there to see, like, all right, what are we going to talk about? Um, and it amazed me looking at all the set lists of how many covers there were. I mean, there were, like, lots of bands. Sure. Their sets were, like, half covers. And I think that's all, like in the history of American popular music, I think it's really kind of like the Beatles or this sort of stark, like, separation. Even though the Beatles had a few covers very early on, oh, yeah. uh, the Beatles and, and, and the Rolling Stones, to another extent later on, really built their repertoire. Once they got the covers out of the way in their first couple of records, they built their repertoire on originals. Um, sure. And, and so, by, but by 1969, you know, so that's five years after the, five, six years after the Beatles came to America. Okay. So the people in that crowd still had musical memory of when there were, like, multiple versions of the same song on the radio. Okay. <laughs> where you've got a song by, by different bands all, all doing the same thing. And so covers, I think, are kind of a critical and often, like, kind of neglected part of the Woodstock story. Um, here in, on, the, like, on the Joe Cocker version, I guess, I mean, you're right. I mean, he's... Cocker's version of uh, uh, Little Help for My Friends is, like, a case study in how to take another song and totally make it your own. Which um, I love. Which is great. Yeah, that is one of the great things about covers. I think the thing I'm reacting to about Joe Cocker, and, and Kelly, I don't know if this is your take on him, it's just like his performance style. I know. It was <laughs> it's just like, like he was in pain. It's like, how, what is this guy doing fronting a band? I he should he, not be there. He he's looks so like cool. he's in pain, and he makes my throat hurt. And yeah, he's, <laughs> he's, he's got some kind of condition, is what I'm thinking. I, yeah. I'm just, I'm like, I'm not, I'm like, uh, yeah, I find it uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. Him. Although you're right, he's got a distinctive voice, and, and, it, and it makes him... You know, able to just like take another version of the song and like turn it inside out and make it his own. 
his styling is so unique. I remember <laughs> seeing in reruns um, John Belushi do him <laughs> on Saturday Night Live, yes. and I knew he was doing, and I was like, oh, yeah, it's Joe, Joe Cocker. Yeah, yeah. It's instantly recognizable. Yeah. yeah. But it, it, I guess you could get the idea that he's in pain. But I mean, a lot of people seen that way. Janis Joplin, she she was really in pain, though. That's true. That's true. <laughs> she was. It's, it's hard to tell where that. the pain, right? The pain in the music. I, I loved how her set starts with her coming out, and and I I have great affection for Janis. She we grew up in the same state, fellow Texan, <laughs> and just down the road from me. And um, <laughs> she asked, "Everybody has enough water and has enough food, and is everybody okay?" And it was just so sincere, and I I really loved that. Awesome. I loved. But another performance that I really loved and and I I just I owe an apology to Joan Baez. Uh-huh. Um when I first saw it I just oh she's so folky and square and uh, and then I listened to it again I was like she had an incredible voice and I started reading about her politics and you know her husband was in jail mm-hmm. um during the time cuz he was a uh a leader in the anti Vietnam the draft. And um, I listened to some more of her music, and I've just really... And I don't know if you know this, Brandon. She has a, an album in Spanish. I, I think I've heard, yeah. Yeah, it's really good. So um, I just kind of rediscovered her, and I've been listening to her all week. Um, and then another performance was... And I've always felt kind of lukewarm with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. But as I'm listening to their performance and their harmonies... I'm just like, wow, they're kind of chill-inducing. And I was like, wow, who in pop music does harmonies anymore i don't know i don't really listen to pop music but yeah just it's not there anymore but there were a lot of bands that came from that that I kind know. of background the like folk. the flying burrito brothers the Country, eagles yeah. They, yeah they kind of pulled like jackson brown yeah. and linda ronstadt they kind of pulled from that tradition yeah so i've kind of rediscovered crosby stills and nash too and uh and one other performance that i didn't even remember from the first time watching it uh 10 years after um, their lead singer, the Al- Alvin Lee. Mm-hmm. That was such a passionate, joyous performance. I just, you know, watched it again. It was just really very inspiring. Um, so those were my favorite performances. Um, anything else about the performances? Uh, n- no. Okay. Really. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, yeah. Um, Let's see. So my favorite fun fact about Woodstock was, I don't know if you can picture the cover of the, the soundtrack, the, mm-hmm. the couple that's on the cover. They are still together. That's adorable. <laughs> I heard that. I know. Way. As of last, I, I, I had seen an article, it was a couple of days ago, and yeah, they were 20 years old, both of them. They worked in a restaurant, and they heard on the radio, if you're going to Woodstock, don't go. The the roads are crowded, and they're like, well, we got to go. <laughs> so they had been dating two months at the time, and so they go with some friends, and they stay, and, and they're still together. And I just think that's kind of the, the lasting image of Woodstock was was that. That's, that's really sweet. <laughs> so, And then, so, Brandon, you have a list of those that said no to peace and music. I do. <laughs> There's some weird ones on here. You're right. For instance, Bob Dylan... Right. Was a resident. He lived close to Woodstock. Right. And isn't that the reason they actually had it there is in hopes that all the musicians that were coming in and out of that area would perform? Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's part of it. And I think it was getting access to a place that was so big. Okay. Because the farmer's field, I don't remember the farmer's name. who Max Max Yaskar. Yeah, him. And he talks (laughs) in the documentary. Does he? Yeah, it's really sweet. He comes up and he uh, he's talking to the crowd and and he said, "I'm a farmer," and everybody goes, "Yay!" <laughs> it's just so wonderful. There's yeah, there's so much cool stuff that came out. Yeah. Like at that time when I was a kid, also kind of not really related, but there used to be this publication called the Whole Earth News. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. I used to love that, and it was kind of like rooted it's in that. It's kind of rooted in that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Dylan declined. Um, he was unhappy about the the number of hippies, and he was kind of just like, eh, you know, okay, yeah, I don't need it. And there was a lot of people <laughs> who were doing it. Um, Simon and Garfunkel declined um, because they were working on a new album. Okay. Um, Led Zeppelin was asked to perform, but they didn't want to be just another band. Apparently, they <laughs> get kind of big at that time. Sure. 
Um, the doors were also considered, but canceled at the last moment. Um, they didn't want to do a second class repeat of the Monterey Pop Festival. Okay. Um, <laughs> Joni Mitchell was also slated to perform, but she um, ended up doing an appearance on the Dick Cavett show. Okay. And so she didn't make it. Interestingly, you're talking about disjunctures and music and the like. Roy Rogers was asked to do Happy Trails at the end. Oh my gosh. But he declined. That would have been an interesting that one. Would have yeah, been, that would have been that great. That would have really brought home that. Sean and I would have made a whole lot more sense. <laughs> right. You're probably right. Yep. Because it's like, because that kind of, I mean, the idea that Roy Rogers was there, it brings in the idea that what the organizers were shooting for was the, the imagined Woodstock audience reliving their childhood. Because right. that would have been, yep. you know, as much as the whole, you know, the people at Woodstock, many of them would have found the whole Roy Rogers, Dale Evans thing, like hopelessly corny and, and out of touch and so forth, it would strike a warm chord with who they were when they were seven. Yeah. Uh, kind of like Shauna. <laughs> yeah, like so yeah, those are just a list of a few people I found. And my favorite, though, and the fa- my favorite excuse was Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull, which we actually mentioned Jethro Tull in the last podcast as well. <laughs> it's a theme. I know. It's just the Michael People Collins can find song. find under Jethro Tull podcast. <laughs> right, exactly. podcast to listen to. But he didn't attend because he didn't like hippies, inappropriate nudity, heavy drinking, and drugs. And I just want to say, excuse me, sir, you realize you're in a rock and roll band, right? <laughs> <laughs> So it's actually kind of endearing too, but <laughs> and then um, so then then there were artists that performed uh, at the festival, but they weren't in the film. And I've been scouring the internet to find out why, what happened. The only one I found out, Credence Clearwater Revival. Yeah, they were great and very popular at the time. In fact, they were the first band to sign on, um, and that got others to sign on. But uh, their record company didn't want their them to be filmed, or they were filmed but not released. And um, and then also the band performed. They performed eleven songs, and they weren't either. Um, who else? Uh, the Grateful Dead. They weren't. So I'm. I can't find out why. And you know that film exists somewhere. I mean, it's sitting in a vault somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, and yeah. most of the performers. I mean, in the documentary, you only see like one or two songs. Most of them performed for an hour and a half or two hours. Yeah. So it's out there. Yeah. Somebody has it. So I'm just gonna do some more digging and find out. Like, where is it? I want to see it. Well, I mean, they, they <laughs> might or they might not. I mean, in you know, I had a, a prior like mini career as a film archivist. Okay. And um, and yeah, I mean, there's incredible like uh, there's lots of stuff that you think someone would have preserved and didn't. didn't. Super Bowl one. Oh. <laughs> Super Bowl one. Like <laughs> really? The Holy Grail of film archives. It's like someone oh, must okay. have it. Nobody has it. So far, no one has oh, surfaced with all right. Super Bowl one. So yeah, um, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, especially like an independent production, you know. I mean, it kind of surprised me in Woodstock. Cause one of the things that strikes me about the festival is it had this sense of its own self-importance from the beginning. Oh, okay. Um, and I would think that with that, they would, you know, save all fragments yeah. associated with it and so on. But, um, but yeah, no, and someone they sent it out in between, like, cutting and mastering and so forth that just that someone throws it out yeah. or maybe some new new stuff will come to light with the 50th anniversary yeah right or right well and it's funny because be like, <laughs> yeah. well That's you know nice. when i rewatched it i was thinking wait i i know i had seen the band mm-hmm. i had seen the band perform the first time and sure enough they weren't but there is a clip on youtube and that was the clip that i guess i would watch on mtv that they would show the weight Oh wow! And, and so that was at Woodstock. It was at Woodstock, and, and and at least it said that's what it says on YouTube, if that's to be believed. But so there is the weight on YouTube that that was them at Woodstock. So well, my favorite thing to do with a song, the weight, is to is to try to <laughs> sing along with it and come in like just a little bit. So it's like. <laughs> like coming on that fourth one, and they right. always like go ahead of me, and I was like. Shoot, I'll get it next time. I mean, <laughs> same thing seems to happen. I, I, I don't know. I don't know where that is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, and I'm just going to give some uh, resources that the library has. Um, we have the actual director's cut, 40th anniversary of Woodstock. Uh, and I know there's an edition that came out in 2014, and it said there's more performances on there. 
but I don't know what. So there you go. Yeah, but not. It's not that many more minutes. I think it was something like seventy more minutes. So, but okay. yeah, we'll try to get that. Maybe they're just stretching it out like every five. years. I know years. every five years we'll. <laughs> so get a new... in time for like Woodstock one hundred, <laughs> we'll finally have access Yay. to the entire days and days of music. Right. And then there's the sound checks. Right. Of course. And there, we also have a book called Woodstock, an inside look at the movie that shook the world and defined a generation. And these are essays by the filmmakers and the technicians and others that were there. And we have that in the library. And I, I read a few of those. And I don't know if, if you know this. Martin Scorsese was an as, assistant director and editor on Woodstock. Oh, wow. Yeah. And there's a picture of him. He's just very young looking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He must have been like 25 or something. Yeah. yeah. So, and also our database, Canopy, our film database, um, I haven't watched it yet, but it looks good, Ain't In It For My Health, a film about Levon Helm, uh, founder of the band, and uh, of course, Give Me Shelter, uh, the Rolling Stones 1969 tour, which leads us into our next uh, topic, Altamont. Yeah. You want to tell us about Altamont? Yeah. I mean, so <laughs> Altamont is the uh, it's a festival in California that came, what was that, like, a, let's say a year after Woodstock. It was in 1970. And, um, yeah, back when I used to teach uh, U.S. since 19, history of the U.S. since 1945 here, I kind of do a lecture on, like, from, you know, Woodstock to Altamont, that it's kind of, I mean, for, you know, looking at, looking at uh, music festivals and, like, a historic standpoint, um bringing an Altamont to a discussion of Woodstock kind of shows the, you know, in a broader sense, shows the the sense of possibility and, like, euphoria in the 1960s and, and other things that, that are a whole lot darker. Yes. <laughs> um, that, in particular, I mean, Altamont is is famous for the... Um, so, first of all, like, one of the things from... that I guess the organizers of Altamont sort of learned from Woodstock was so that rather than expecting... Uh, you know, the performers on stage to be, like, doing their own security and, like, you know, kicking people away when they're <laughs> right. on stage. Um, the organizers at Altamont uh, hired the Hells Angels yes. uh, to do security. Yes. Um, Hells Angels themselves, I, you know, more people should be writing histories of the Hells Angels. I think they're kind of a fascinating group. Okay. Um, that, you know, you've got this, in some ways they're really influential in the 1960s. They were formed in 1947, Hollister, California, by... Um, by mostly of uh, veterans of World War II who had not adjusted to civilian life. Uh, okay. Their their way of kind of getting back in was hanging out with fellow veterans, riding motorcycles, um, and uh, and kind of thumbing their they're very cynical bunch of guys. Sure. Kind of thumbing their nose at the law in a bunch of ways, and the movement kind of grew through the 1960s and 70s. So that in some ways, by 1970, the Hell's Angels had this kind of um, countercultural cred, but. Uh, on the back of violence. Right. On the back of, like, you look at a Hell's Angel the wrong way and you're going to get stomped. Right. So Hell's Angels did security. Uh, a man named Meredith Hunter uh, tried to get close to the stage, and the and the Hell's Angels beat him to death, mm. basically. And the Rolling Stones are kind of playing the whole time, and they look sort of confused about what's happening. They can't quite see it. They're not stopping the song. Yeah. Um, but it's this kind of, you know, in, in a bunch of ways in, in the history of rock and roll, it's this kind of, like, whoa sort of moment. Um, uh, kind of on a par with the um, 1979 um, incident oh, in yeah. Cincinnati when the Who were playing a stadium concert. Right. And uh, when the doors opened for the festival seating on the arena stadium, like four or five people died. Yeah. In the, in the Trampled to death. So, yeah. yes, it's, it's a theme. And then that's a theme that, like, comes out in, um, comes out in movies like Pink Floyd's The Wall. Right. That looks like, looks at, like, and, and in some ways it's, it's, like, deeply offensive. In other ways it's kind of fascinating. The idea of, like, military metaphors for rock concerts. Mm. Um but, uh, but yeah, it's like, uh, you know, in both cases, Altamont and, and then the Who thing later on, it's like there's a, there's a siege and there's a, you know, there's a, a counter, a counter push and then there's casualties. Right. Um, so yeah, so Altamont really, I, I think in a, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a terrible moment. I mean, it's kind of, uh, some of the Rolling Stones had to kind of deal with yeah. there. Um, I think also for the music festival business, it, it seemed like of, it, it kind of seems like it was a long time yeah. before there were other major music festivals yep. because you know promoters would say it's going to be the next Woodstock and the funders would like or it's <laughs> no. be the next Altamont right yeah. <laughs> okay we move on so I, I think well and what I liked about in the documentary the Woodstock is when they saw all the people coming over the fence they're just like we can't stop them because this people are going to get hurt on mm-hmm. our side and their side it's a free concert now people yeah. you know so. 
at least they took their safety first. Yeah. And it yeah. doesn't sound like that was the plan for Altamont. Yeah, no. <laughs> So, yeah, so Altamont. Yeah. A- when the first time I had watched it, I, I was like, oh, a concert film, and I didn't know anything oh. about it. And it's so dark at the end. Oh. It's just so dark. And uh, it really kind of, you know, put me off the Rolling Stones for a while. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I still like their music, but it was like, oh. I love the Rolling Stones. I know you do. A lot. A <laughs> right? lot. And I just, I think it's a unfortunate historical event that it happened sure. to them because it would have probably happened to any band that's, that was that's right yeah there's nothing nothing well, particular about the rolling stones's music that made that happen right to any popular group at the time um or yeah. i mean maybe status quo i mean groups that were less well known you know yeah uh the incredible string band could have had that on a concert for all <laughs> sure. we know but well i remember mick jagger like you know saying hey people you know cool down you know let, let's take it easy back up a bit you know and um, so he tried to, you know, um, calm the audience down, but uh, it didn't work. So thinking about the Hell's Angels, it, it makes me think like there was this whole like culture in the like late '60s, early '70s, like the Easy Rider, Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, just kind of like this movement into that oh. realm. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a whole genre of biker movies. I mean, Easy yeah. Rider, by the time Easy Rider came out in 69, there had already been four years of biker movies. It's uh, <laughs> Roger Corman's The Wild Angels from 1965 or 66, uh, starring Peter Fonda, that kind of kicks off the biker movie genre. Um, and biker movies are, I mean, you know, a, a lot of the footage is like guys on choppers. That's a big part of it. It's like ridiculously tricked out bikes. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's like guys run their choppers, but they're also like super nihilistic. Um, you know, the, uh, spoiler, the end of Wild Angels, they're like, um, they're having like this orgy in a church and they're just like smashing everything in sight. And it's like, what difference does it make? Yeah. You know? So, so yes, yeah, so the biker movies are, are pretty consistently nihilistic, but they were, they were popular enough that yeah, from, from the sixties until like, I think the early seventies demand for biker movies kind of leveled off. <laughs> uh, it gets sort of, I would say if I'm going to write a paper on this, I would say it gets co-opted by chips. <laughs> the of the cops. I love chips when I was a kid. <laughs> it's a good show. It's a, show. It it's a natural progression. But uh, but yeah, no. I mean, there's a whole there's a whole wave of biker movies, and I think that also. I mean, I, I'm, thanks for bringing that in because I think um, biker movies uh, could have been part of the reason for like the Hell's Angels have this mystique. Uh, that I think one of the things that the biker movie trend uh, kind of engendered is the. Um, kind of showing people that, yeah, you, you know, a biker gang is a thing you can do. Uh, and, sort of, and sort of brought this, <laughs> to, like, to subculture to. out. <laughs> and people are just like, wait, I've got a bike. I could I could do some work on it, get my guys together, get custom jackets, you know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that was kind of part of the reason for the for the Hells Angels being there. Um, actually, like, even earlier, uh, you've got, um, I mean, before it was kind of a singular movie, um, that, but it involves bikers, um, The Wild One. Brando movie sure. from yeah. 54. Sure. Um, you know, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? I mean, similar kind of like, <laughs> similar kind of like just, you know, nihilistic sorts of things. I mean, there the bikers are sort of, you know, hemmed into a more conventional story structure and they're not exactly like the, the total heroes of the piece. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the biker had a, you know, had a strong role in, in American culture by 69. Okay. All right, so moving on to uh, music festivals today, and you, you had a few words to say I about that. So it's between this, and there's a, 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 I saw a couple of my cousins last weekend who were big music buffs, and they were telling okay. me about a, a Facebook group uh, that I joined that has, like, you post, like, a video of a song on a particular theme, and it's kind of a fun thing they do. And so I, so I just did this. And one of the things on this site, it's, it's like a private site, so you have, to, you have to sign up for it, and you have to answer a question, what was your most transcendent concert experience? Hmm. And while doing this, and the combination of doing this and thinking about this show on music festivals, and trying to figure out, like, why am I talking about music festivals? Because I really haven't been to them. And that got me thinking, too, you know, I've been listening to music seriously since I was, like, 10, 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this, you know, one of the things that my wife and I bonded on when we first met was we're both record collectors. We had this <laughs> big record collection. We merged. We moved in together. <laughs> and honestly, it was, like, the first thing we did I think, before we unpacked. <laughs> really? Like, We've got to get our records in my order. Wife, like, the kitchen goods that my wife was bringing to our apartment, and we alphabetized the records. Okay. Figured out, do we, like, after artists, do you go chronologically or alphabetically by title uh-huh. and album? So very interesting. <laughs> to this 
Um, but yeah, never been to a music festival. And I realized I, I can't stand big crowds and loud music. Oh, just, it doesn't work for me. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about like two occasions when I was in high school where um, touring bands came to uh, Wing Stadium in Kalamazoo, Michigan, hockey arena where I grew up. Um, and, uh, and I got like sick the night of the concert. Oh, like, like sick, like throwing up sick. Oh no. And I was like, symptoms came out of nowhere. And I was like, whoop. And I was like, no, I can't go. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't, I mean the like huge numbers of people, the possibility that things are, are going to be stumped, like the sound quality. I mean, once I started, once I like actually like had some hearing loss and started wearing like earplugs mm. to concerts, I was like, okay, then the sound design started to make a little more sense because I could okay, actually yeah. hear what was going on. It wasn't just like echoing off my, you know, inside my ears. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the shows I really like, I mean, the, the experience I've had are like the exact opposite of Woodstock. It's like going to, and, and it can be like a, like a touring act, but like a touring act at a sparsely attended show. It was like nobody there. Or the Stoughton Opera House. Or the Stoughton Opera House. Would be, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you know, I, I saw bands at the at the Western Michigan University Student Center when mm-hmm. I was when I was growing up and that was those are terrific shows because there just weren't that many people right. from Western going to see the music I was going to see I saw the Ventures play a nearly empty theater once okay. that was a fantastic show <laughs> not good for them but not good, good for, for you. them but, but they still you know but the, the thing I mean it's like it's this kind of give and take that I really respect musicians who get up there and they just, they leave it all on the stage, whether they're playing for like 50 people or 5,000. Right. Absolutely. And, um, and I just, and I also, in those, in those smaller shows, I mean, like, you know, like seeing shows in, in coffee houses and like smaller bars and things like that. Um, I think part of me, what, what I like about going to see live music, it's like a bond between the performer and the audience. And if you try to see a band like in a stadium or at a huge outdoor festival, um, or even at, even in facilities like um, like Alpine Valley, you know, I've, I've been to been to shows out mm-hmm. there, and they were fine. You know, it was yeah. fun to hear a band. You know, it was fun to hear like a musician you like play like a a, a mash like a mixtape of their of their songs <laughs> of their <laughs> right. latest records and other things. The occasional cover coming in there at you know five times the volume you never listened to it, but it's like the really amazing show experiences were were things on a much smaller scale. Um, but clearly, the enduring success of music festivals says oh, that I know. I'm a minority voice on this one. I mean, you've got you've got Lollapalooza starting in the was it late '80s and yeah. '90s and the Warp Tour. Um, you've got the you've got the Woodstock revivals. Over Coachella, the years. Coachella, yeah, Little Fair, yeah, Little Fair, right? <laughs> Excellent, yeah. That um, that is it's clearly a model that works for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I'm just, I realized I'm like, yeah, no, I'm totally not one of them. Yeah. I'm amazed at the prices, uh, <laughs> just to go. I, I looked at just to go to Lollapalooza was $450. Yeah. And that's wow. just basic general admission. I don't think you get food or anything. I think maybe you get to camp or something. I'm not sure. But, um, you know, when I, I talked about the ticket prices for Woodstock, I mean, I think the minimum age in 1969 was like $1.50. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not much. Well, so what is it, what is it now? $7.50, $8.50? Yeah, um, like $7.50. Yeah. You know, it just, it, it doesn't work out monetarily. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm just amazed at that. And, and when I was younger in, in high school and, and certainly my, my 20s, I loved going to shows and I didn't, big crowds didn't bother me. Now they do. I do not want to go to Alpine Valley or big shows. Um, I like little, little Stoughton Opera House or smaller fest, you know. Um, but uh, yeah. So how about you, Brandon? I guess I'm with you guys. I don't really want to be in a mass of people in case something goes ultimate. I don't want to be involved in that. <laughs> yeah. But um, I remember many years ago now, there used to be this thing. I don't know if they have it in Madison anymore. There used to be this little thing in uh, James Madison Park called Party in the Park. Yeah. That SUM used to put yeah. in WSUM at the mm-hmm. university. Okay. Some years ago, I saw the White Stripes there. Oh, wow. Before they were anything. Yeah. yeah. And great. I could, like, reach out and touch Jack White's foot practically yeah. where I was. And I was like, oh, this is great. But that's kind of my speed. A little bit smaller in a park. It's yeah. It's pretty. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great setting for a yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, I mean, I think, Kelly, going back to your question about, you know, why, you know, why are people spending 450 bucks <laughs> to see, you know, see a blind of music and be standing in like Grant Park all day or, right. or something. Yeah. 
Um, I think what's happened, and, and Woodstock, like the promotion for Woodstock was kind of kind of aware of this, is that the music festival becomes like a becomes like a badge, becomes like a mark of status on its own. An experience. Or it's an experience, yeah. yeah. And so Woodstock was was really kind of marketed like that from the start. I mean, within, you know, among like kind of cutting edge American musicians of like nineteen, you know, the late sixties, like the whole Woodstock concept. I mean, in addition to the the bands who didn't come and the and the conflicts, the rationales behind them, there are other bands who are just like. It's just the promoters are just making a ton of money off this. You know, this is this is selling out the music in some way. Um, I mean, the article I read, there was an article on Vox.com about the history of the Warp Tour, which is, it's like its 25th anniversary this year or something. What kind of music <laughs> is the Warp Tour? Warp Tour, it was, uh, it was really important in like the pop punk and kind of the okay. third wave ska revival. Okay. Yeah, like, uh, really came out of that. Blink-182. Um, exactly, yeah. Blink-182 is all over the article, Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so those guys, some of the um, groups like uh, like Chemical Romance, like kind of broke out at a you know during a, when they were touring for the, the Warp Tour. So the thing about the Warp Tour, what kind of distinguishes it from the others, is that like the promoters of Woodstock, you know, peace, love, and, and whatnot, notwithstanding, they were looking to make a ton of money on it. Of course, yes, um, and it sort of did. Peace um, and love and, and money. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, you know, likewise, like Altamont. Yeah, that wasn't just like yeah, it was it wasn't the same as like the beans that preceded it, where like the Grateful Dead are just like playing in Golden Gate Park and people hang out and go and get high. It was like no, there was like an admissions and, and so forth and security, as we've talked about at length. Um, but what, what's different about the uh, and Lollapalooza, of course, was not like directly sponsored. It was kind of uh, Perry Farrell from Jane's Addiction. It was like his idea to get a bunch of his favorite bands together and go on tour. And Lola Fair, uh, Sarah McLachlan, kind of ditto. Um, where the Warp Tour is different was it's really the Vans Warp Tour. The whole thing was the first big sponsor was Vans Shoes. Okay. And and then in turn, Vans, you know, Vans was gonna was gonna just do it. And they're like, oh, this is way too expensive and complicated. And so they got other they got other vendors to to put in a much like a much bigger like commercial presence, like kind of a whole like outdoor mall of like brands. I mean, it wasn't like going to a dead show or something like that. It was a shopping. People yeah. like making cheese sandwiches and tie dye <laughs> shirts and, and other sorts of DIY crafts that they, that they're offering for sale. It's like manufacturers have stuff like okay, sneaker companies yeah. and things like that. Wow. So, um, so I think that's, that's, that's one of the other things. I, I think that's why it, it's kind of expensive is that it becomes an experience. It becomes mm. this, this kind of um, commercialized happening that to be able to say that you went, you know, to, and, and also to imply, uh, because, I mean, because Lollapalooza, I mean, yeah, there are going to be some people in attendance for whom $450 is like the change in between the seats of their car. Uh, But for a lot of people, it's not. I mean, a lot of the fans, it's not. And so going to Lollapalooza and being able to have like the the badge or whatever, the, the, you know, wristband or like whatever other stuff associated with that is proof to say, yeah, I went. And and they have the VIP. So you have like, it's kind of like all access. And that was $1,000. Yeah. So that's probably a bigger... You can, you know, really look cool if you've got the VIP pass. Yeah. But then it's also like, so, all right, so here's a question. So uh, I just saw the other day Farm Aid is coming back to Wisconsin. Oh, wow. (laughs) So is Farm Aid a music festival? Or is that a different thing? Is it? Yeah. I mean, because... Is is this under the same, is the same umbrella as like Woodstock and uh, Altamont and and Lollapalooza and such? Well, the difference being that the money goes to a a charity. Money goes to a charity. To help the farmers in this case. Right. But that's the only difference? Yeah, well, that's, that's what I'm trying. I just I thought of that like literally on the spot because I remember Farm Aid like when it first happened. It was like Willie Nelson and John yeah. Mellencamp and Dave uh, Matthews has joined. Yeah, yeah, later. Yeah, I, I think it's a music festival. Yeah, yeah, I think it counts. Yeah, it's like I don't think it's quite as. It's only like Farm Aid's usually like one day, right? It's not. Yeah, like I don't think it's like a multi day thing. Yeah. Um, so yes, that's a little different. I mean, Live Aid, of course. I mean, live. So, right. but Live Aid, and, and also, I mean, whoops, um, <laughs> it's the podcaster I'm kicking in. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I remember, I remember Live Aid because I was like working in television at that point. I was working oh, at a okay. TV station in my hometown, um, and uh, part of my job was taking stuff off the um, off the national news feed and, and cutting it down to fit the local newscast. And, um, and yeah, I mean, that was, that was an all day thing, but there, there's something about like the, 
about the approach to charity of of Live Aid and then Farm Aid. Live Aid is the one that originated in England. Yeah, for uh, African for, famine relief. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Then it's like that. It's, it's an element of of philanthropy in in the 1980s. Going way out on a limb here, so stop me if I get off That's track. That's all right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's an outgrowth of like 80s philanthropy that really kind of juggles the relationship of the giver of charity and the recipients thereof. That in in many traditions and in many customs, the idea of giving charity is you do so like relatively anonymously. Is that maybe hmm. maybe you you know attach your name to it or or you by publicizing your gifts you inspire other friends who are at a similar income level to dig a little deeper and give to the cause that you embrace. But Live Aid was very much about like you know, <laughs> ourselves on the back and saying look what a great job we're doing. Now I feel like. I feel like there. I mean, they're also. It, it's tricky though because there was a really sincere, you know, there was a really sincere impulse behind that. As there's and and Farm Aid, I feel like is has a lot of that sincerity there also. But it's if you, if you and I feel like being cynical about it because I don't know what <laughs> it has to be. <laughs> feel free. It's a podcast, but um, but if you look at it, I mean, the the idea that it's like Willie Nelson and and John Cougar Mellencamp doing this, it's like it's totally on brand. Right. I mean, they're sort of like these, the voice of rural, the, the voice of I mean, they're, they're hipster-ish mus- rural America. Their music reflects. And their music reflects yeah. it. And so, you know, it's like, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of their brand that's doing that. Uh, I mean, having said that, no, I mean, American farmers, and especially in Wisconsin, which is why they're having farm aid here, are like yeah. taking it in the, in the teeth. I mean, it's, it's been terrible. Um, but, yeah, but I feel like that's, you know, the, like the aspect of the, I think the way I got around to this whole thread... <laughs> Is that it came back to the, the conversation we were having about, like, the commercial aspects of music festivals. Right. And that in, in Farm Aid or a Live, or, or a live Aid or, or something in that line, there were, there were other ones. It's like, okay, here, here's one for you, Brandon. Here an Aid. It was like a heavy metal one. <laughs> what was the cause? I don't remember. I legit don't remember. Probably hearing. Probably, yeah. Lots of hearing. Research. Yeah. So, um, Is that the one Spinal Tap played? I remember seeing. Did they actually? Did Spinal Tap actually play that? You know what? I think they did. I remember seeing um, something on MTV. This is eighties, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And yeah, and they were very funny. It could have been. And it could have been. Yeah. yeah. They're the only band I, I remember, though. Yes, and, and certainly, <laughs> certainly, my if my high school newspaper is any indication, some people did not realize Spinal Tap was a joke when it came. Out. I know. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah. Um, so yeah. So it's so yeah. So that's. Um, so these charitable music festivals, again, by adopting the music festival model, they're a very like above board way to kind of, in the same way that going to a music festival in itself is a way of saying, I have the disposable income to blow hundreds of dollars on this on this yeah. concert, or and or I'm such a massive fan of this group or set of groups, I'm going to do that. That also by spending large amounts of money to go to one of these is a way of saying I'm so great for yes. paying to see all these bands for which a fraction of what I pay is going to go to. Farmers, as opposed to, you know, working with, um, you know, donating to social work agencies in rural Wisconsin, uh, you know, things like that. Yeah. Going back to your point about it being on brand for people like Willie Nelson or, yeah. or John Mellencamp, yeah, yeah. I think that if it were like somebody like Michael Jackson in the eighties, I mean, it's not that yeah, they don't that use be, farmers, yeah. right? You know, talents equally. It's just it doesn't seem as sincere. Yeah, like Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson, they did We Are the World. Right. And all right. that stuff. But it, it just... It would seem, yeah. It would or seem if it was off. like, yeah. And who's more in touch? Well, so, the, so the question is like, who else is in the, who else has been in the Farm Aid lineup? I mean, are there... Well, no, Dave Matthews has. Dave Matthews is yeah. in there. Okay, so he's out of Charlottesville, Virginia. So it's mm-hmm. kind of a rural-ish area. Yep. But and I know they. I know yeah, they've, right. they've, they've actually, uh, the band um, members have bought... Um, land there and, you know, have people farm on it and they're into organic and so they're, you know, putting their money where their mouth is. I, That's but cool. the yeah. Charlottesville metro area is also some of the most high-priced farmland in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> really so they can expensive. afford it. <laughs> yes. All right. Yeah. All right. So um, the latest on Woodstock 50 is they still don't have a permit and they're supposed to hold it <laughs> August, I think August 16th through the 19th. Um, so that's in like three weeks. Wow. And, um, 
And we know how long, I mean, it took the Woodstock, I mean, it took them a year to, to plan all this and um, everything, um, which kind of leads us into the fire Festival. Um, <laughs> did you have a few words to say about the fire yeah, Festival? Yeah, I mean, that was just, I mean, incredible. I, you know, I, I felt, I felt a, a tiny bit bad for people who were stuck on a small island in the Bahamas. And, yeah, and just to tell people <laughs> what it was, was a, there is actually a documentary on Hulu, and then there's a documentary on Netflix, and um, you can actually go to YouTube and look at the trailer. And I encourage people to. It's it's beautiful. It's just this glossy trailer about this great festival, and, and they do sell it as an experience yeah. um, to come and to this island that uh, Pablo Escobar used to own and okay. live on. <laughs> so it's got this uh, you know kind of cool mystique to it, I guess. Um, depending on how you feel about Pablo Escobar, <laughs> but uh, so it's this beautiful, and they have beautiful models, and they're you know uh, boats and everything, and it comes to to find out that it's it's all a hoax. I think maybe it was sincere in the beginning to try to do this, but they just failed. Um, yeah, no, failed big time. People were stranded out there. There was you know the food was really minimal. Right, sanitation facilities were non-existent. Um, yeah, no, that one, I mean, that the Fire Festival, I guess, is kind of the ultimate example of the, the balance between, like, hype and music. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it sounds, you know, we're, it sounds like we're kind of putting, like, a trajectory together here, where, where Woodstock, I mean, yeah, there's a fair amount of hype, but the music kind of swamped it, because yeah. in the end, lots of people got into the show free. Right. If you're trying to sell something, <laughs> that's, like, the worst possible outcome. So but they more than made free. their money back. So... <laughs> Um, so you've got that on one end and, um, and then like really, then like another example would be like more low key music festivals. Like, you know, you've got a festival in a college town for local college radio station where, you know, a few up and coming bands come out and that one's really about, you know, about all the music and and the hype is pretty, pretty low key. Uh, and then the fire festival is at completely the other end. It's all hype and no music. Yeah. And it's like, (laughs) maybe if somebody brought like a mandolin or something like that, somebody was playing music somewhere (laughs) or picking out something, but, um, but yeah, no, there's like no music and it's all hype. The yeah. person associated with it too, if I'm not mistaken, was Ja Rule. Yes. Which right. is a peculiar choice because <laughs> it's it's kind of dated to the you know, early two thousands, I yeah. wanna say. Yeah. I don't know. Ja Rule's not the biggest name. Yeah. Yeah, so that well in some ways though, I mean that's I feel like that's one of the things that and maybe uh maybe it's like Shanana at Woodstock <laughs> kind of laid a precedent that there's always it, it seems like most musical music festival lineups, there's always like some head scratcher. Yeah. You know, you look down and you're just like, Okay, this is this is a coherent list, it's it's the most popular music for a certain like age demographic or a certain type of music, certain genre of music, and you're just like what are they doing in there? But do you lead with the head scratcher? But do you lead with the head scratcher? <laughs> yeah. In case, oh yeah, John Roll, I remember him. What's up to these days? <laughs> okay, music festival. How odd. Yeah. In the Bahamas. In the Bahamas. Yeah, I remember watching it, and there is a certain amount of uh, what's the Schroden Schroden Florida? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because these just young people that have unbelievable amounts of money. And the one guy that put eighty thousand dollars on his prepaid events pass, <laughs> yeah. oh my gosh. and it's just—it's incredible, you know. And, uh, and actually, it's like—I think it's an—it's an important point in the history of the Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, the history—it's—it's it's really, it's really consonant with the rest of the history of that country because. I mean, the, the history of the Bahamas is built on piracy. Mm. I mean, that was the sole <laughs> Good point. reason that the Bahamas were a thing back in the seventeen hundreds and so forth. Um, piracy and, and activities are otherwise illegal. Um, there were, I was in the Bahamas like a year ago. Oh, okay. the Bahamian History Museum. It was fascinating. <laughs> sure. They weren't quite this blunt about it, but it was right between the lines. You're like, yeah, this town has always been like where the illegal stuff goes on. There were like multiple groups of people who were enslaved in the United States and escaped to the Bahamas. Mm. They were enslaved like in, along the Florida and Georgia coast. And to get to the Bahamas from there, it's just you, you go across you know, across part of the Atlantic there, and boom, you're in the Bahamas. So, yeah, there are colonies. People came over. The U.S. was like, hey, wait a minute. People escaped this British territory. And Britain was like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And they thrived. They became part of, you know, uh, Bahamian Bahamian communities built up around them, and their descendants got involved in in island politics and so forth. Yeah. So it's always been, like, the Bahamas, they were... 
a big highlight in Bahamian tourism was Prohibition, of course. It's sure. Right off the coast of Miami. And so you take a speedboat <laughs> and you're like in Freeport or Nassau like super quickly. You can yeah. drink all you want. So, yeah, it's just the fact that there's, for my, in my opinion, there's almost no better place on the globe that you could have a fraudulent music festival yes. like the Bahamas. Yeah. Well, well played, perfect. sir. Well played. It's perfect. I guess I, I still feel bad for the, the, the locals that were, uh, there was the caterer that, you know, yeah. was out her life savings. Yeah. Wow. And then the workmen that were building the tents. Actually, yeah. the tents were kind of cool, I thought. Yeah. But, um, so they were out. They were out uh, money. So I, at least, I hope. This this guy is getting sued, um, and I hope that those people get something back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So it's time for trivia, Brandon. All right. I've got the trivia cards, courtesy of Mr. Mark, Mark Lukehalter. Yeah. It's entitled The Summer of 69 Trivia. Okay. All right. All of the questions in today's quiz deal with events that occurred from June to September 1969. Okay. Over at the Five and Dime. Over at the Five and Dime. All Question right. one. All right. After the Cuyahoga River in this city caught fire in June 1969, it spurred the creation of the Clean Water Act and Cleveland. later the creation of the Environmental <laughs> Protection there. Agency. I was living in Cleveland in 1969. Really? Yeah. Wow. yeah. Suburban Cleveland. But yeah, Cleveland nonetheless. Huh. Yeah, so that was like part of, I mean, I, I don't remember it, of course, but for right. years, I mean, I... We moved out of Cleveland in 1979, and so, yeah, for my whole childhood, like, the Cuyahoga River was kind of like a punchline, and it was setting on fire. When I was in fourth grade, we went on, like, an all-day field trip from our suburb into downtown. So was it chemicals, like, in the river that exploded? Yeah, so the deal is, I got this. So so the Cuyahoga, uh, like, like other rivers in northern, like, some of the other rivers in northeastern Ohio, um, it's fairly shallow, and it's very slow. It it takes lots of these, lots of hairpin turns. Uh, so it's not a straight course, so it's a slow-moving, shallow river. And since the like since the end of the Civil War, really, there had been heavy industry on the Cuyahoga. Oh, okay. Cleveland was, a, that was an oil refining town. It was close to the first oil deposits in the U.S. and Pennsylvania, like the closest major port. Yeah. Um, so it got an oil refining early, got into there were steel mills down there, all kinds of other factories. Um, and so they just discharge their waste into this, into this river that went by. I'll just take it down the river. It'll go somewhere else. Well, after a certain amount of time, you know, things that are, you know, load up a river with enough flammable material right. and that river's, you know, flowing at a very lazy pace. There's, it, it's not mm. changing a whole lot. Then yeah, sparks going to get in there. It's going to get set on fire. Wow. So yeah, so that is, mm. that is my hometown and I'm proud of it. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> All right. Makes me think of the pretenders. Oh, yeah. They're from around that area. Yeah, they're from Akron. Uh, yeah, they're from our... Chrissy Hines from Akron. Everyone else is British. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Chrissy Hines. Oh, uh, Cleveland Music. That's another whole podcast. <laughs> okay. As far as I'm concerned. Well, uh, down. <laughs> another X-Months from now. All right. I'll tell you more than you want to know. <laughs> uh, question two. A faction of the students for a democratic society called the Weathermen released a positional paper... A position paper at the June 1969 SDS convention in Chicago calling for the destruction of U.S. imperialism. What was the name of the paper and from what Bob Dylan song was the name borrowed from? Oh, gosh. Oh, well, it's, uh, what's the name of the paper? Was it just, was it just Weatherman? No, that's the name of the group. The Weather Report. Is Is that that a Bob Dylan song? No, the so, so, the so the line is you don't need a, a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Okay. And then which Dylan song is that from? Um, that does sound familiar. Uh, Look out, kid. The, yeah, that, right. Oh, it's that one. Okay. <laughs> Mark might have gotten. Is us. that that subterranean homesick yeah, blues? Oh, subterranean homesick blues. Yeah, let's try that. Don't know the name of the paper though. The answer to the first one, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Okay. In subterranean homesick blues. Yes, nice. all right. Teamwork. <laughs> I'm sad that I've heard that song so many times. I mean, quick. But yeah. I, I know I the line. I was going to sing it in like, my head. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're so, like, the yeah. Dylan songs, I don't know where yeah. the lyrics come from. They're just yeah. a hodgepodge in my brain. Uh, question three. A police raid... And subsequent riots at this New York Inn are credited as being the start of the modern gay rights movement in the United States. Stonewall. Stonewall, Stonewall yes. Which also, yes, Stonewall. 50 years, yep. 
Um, question four. The administrator of NASA during the Apollo 11 moon landing shared the name, the same name as one of the founding fathers of the United States. Wow, the administrator of NASA. During the Apollo 11 moon landing, shared the same name as one of the founding fathers of the United States. Gosh. I could throw out some random guess, but yeah, I don't know the answer. Uh, James Madison? I don't know. Um, um, I'm going to say John Jay. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> Thomas Paine. Uh, you know, I heard that somewhere before, and I just forgot. <laughs> I never heard of that. <laughs> uh, the next question. Bad feelings and fighting between these two countries in a FIFA World Cup qualifying game... <laughs> Help spark the football war or hundred hours war. Oh, oh it's um <laughs> hang on. It's uh It really it's happened in Northern Central America, yeah. It's um is it Nicaragua Honduras? It or is it or is it Guatemala Honduras? I wanna say El Salvador. It's El Salvador in there, so Honduras. El Salvador I don't have a guess. It could be El Salvador Honduras. <laughs> or it could be El Salvador Nicaragua. Shoot. Okay. Oh yes. <laughs> Honduras and El Salvador. Honduras and El Salvador, nice one. All right. Um, next question. This 1969 Major League expansion team <laughs> played in a converted minor league stadium that lacked the infrastructure to accommodate the extra seats that were put in, among many other problems. When crowding exceeded 10,000 people, none of the stadium's toilets flushed. <laughs> The That's a team. Lot of detail. <laughs> this is this. Yeah, this is an extensive one. Uh, the team went bankrupt after one season, moved to Milwaukee, and became the Brewers. It's the Seattle Pilots. The Seattle Pilots. Seattle Pilots. Wow! I, I great. I have no idea. <laughs> no guess. It's the Seattle Pilots. Okay. Seattle Pilots. Never heard of them. I knew that's the Mariners. I know the Mariners. Yeah. Well, no. That's why. I mean, that's how. That's how Seattle got a team like in a slightly later expansion. Because, yeah, the pilots had been so bad and there was a lot of demand for it. And, I mean, people were coming. I mean, they were showing up at this at this cruddy little minor league stadium and they wanted to support the team. But, yeah, so that's what Mariners And their name because Boeing and stuff is from there? Is that what they're the pilots? Or? Pilots. I Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how they got Never heard of pilots. them. <laughs> wow. Uh, the next question. On September 13th, 1969, this animated series premiered on CBS, a result of Fred Silverman asking William Hanna and Joseph Barbera to create a show as a cross between mystery radio serials of the 1940s and the TV show The Many Lives of Dobie Gillis. Okay, I was going to say Scooby-Doo, but... I, well, I, Dobie, yeah, Dobie Gillis is... Right, Dobie Gillis is there because... Because the... Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, what's his name? The Bob Denver's character on the Dobie Gillis show. Like the oh, okay. beat guy. Um, Maynard Krebs. Maynard Krebs, that's Shaggy. Okay. Shaggy is basically yeah. Maynard Krebs. And then, yeah, and you've got, like, Fred is kind of like Toby Gillis. So. Yeah, I was going to say the same because I can't imagine the Flintstones or um, Flintstones the Jetsons. Are Flintstones and Jetsons are early 60s. Yeah, and they're the same creators, it's gotta but be it's, it's got to be Scooby. Just remember the right? clothes they're wearing, Daphne and. Yeah, well, very, very au courant for, like, 1969. Yes. Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo. Yes. And the last question, also a longer one. Okay. Finally, while it seemed like every band in the world would have wanted to play at Woodstock in 1969, many turned down the invitation, often oddly. Try to guess the band or performer with the commonly held rumor that they didn't play Woodstock. The first one, a helicopter wasn't provided to fly them in. Ooh. Ooh. There were bands for fun in the helicopter. Oh, so. Well, I'll say Jim Morrison's kind of a diva, so I'll go with the doors. <laughs> uh, I'd say I'd say Zeppelin. Okay. For kind of the same reason. Yeah. The answer, Iron Butterfly. Oh. Iron Butterfly. Who? <laughs> <laughs> I only know Inagata to be Yeah, that's, that's it. all that's I know. That's a big one. Uh, the next one, the lead was uncomfortable with the prospect of seeing a lot of naked women. Uh, Sounds know, like Ian Anderson. Anderson. Yeah, yeah. Jethro Tull, correct. <laughs> the next one, 
Uh, her agent wanted her to do the Dick Cavett show instead. Yeah, perfect. It's Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell. Who, you know, she wrote Woodstock, um, the Crosby, Stills, and Nash song. She, she wrote wasn't it? there, but her boyfriend at the time was Nash, and he told her about <laughs> it, and she wrote the song. Oh, that's so, great. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't listen to it. I, I don't Mitchell. think I've ever heard a version by her, but yeah, something to seek out. And the very last of the last of the questions. He was tired of dealing with hippies. Tired of dealing with who? Uh, oh, uh, it could be Bob Dylan. Okay. It yeah. is Bob Dylan. All right. Good. It seemed like you were going to hit a hippie at some point. <laughs> yeah. It's 1969. It was, it you know, yeah. the truth of it, yes, there were hippies there. But when you watch the documentary and they're just, t- they're just regular kids that are going to a show. Uh-huh. You know, they just... And even the the townspeople, that yeah, they're just nice kids, you know. So, and there's even the nuns there. Um, do you remember that scene? <laughs> Forgot. Yeah, they, they they get out and they're yeah, we're here for peace, and you know, and they're doing the peace sign. And so, I, I do think most of the people there were just regular people that wanted to see a festival. I guess it gets into like collective memory and like what we know. Like I wasn't alive at the time, so it's like. I think everyone was a hippie in 1969. Right, exactly. I've seen hair. Did you take U.S. since 45? With I me? did. I was going to say, that. I was like, collective memory, wait a minute. I've heard that before. Yeah, no, that's, I, I think you're totally right. Yeah, I, I feel all the more justified for, for Harvard on that so hard when I taught that class. Um, <laughs> that, uh, that, yeah, I th- and, and I think that's a great, uh, that's a great piece of advice uh, for other cultural artifacts from this period is to, like, look at it closely and see. It's like, yeah, there's this few, like, you know, like like long hair on guys, it's like pretty much me right now. You know, <laughs> well, it's like my hair's not that long by long hair standards, but by nineteen sixty nine standards, kind of edgy. Yeah, in the scene in in the documentary where the kids are waiting in line to call their parents to let them know that they're okay because they were hearing rumors that. Uh, the parents were hearing rumors like, oh, it's it's Madhouse. And, you know, it's yeah. like, you know, all hell's broken loose. And they're just calling mom and dad. And, you know, we're fine. We're having a great time, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It's, it's endearing. Hello, everyone. Dana here, the collection development librarian for the Madison College Libraries. Over the past few months, the Madison College Libraries have been partnering with some of our music faculty to build up our collections for our Madison College students. Some recent additions include a generous gift by the music department of a full set of encyclopedias featuring music from around the world, as well as some great works that they suggested for us to add. Nice. (laughs) These include biographies of musicians like Anthony Kiedis, Live recordings of music performances on DVD, like Leonard Bernstein's Young People's Concerts. Yay! And some great documentaries, such as The Wrecking Crew. All right. The Wrecking Crew. Uh Uh-huh. Also, the libraries will soon be unveiling a collection of items purchased with a generous grant. I can't say too much about it yet, but I wanted to give our overdue podcast listeners a sneak peek. So, this collection is going to include some fantastic music albums that were created right here in Wisconsin by Wisconsin musicians. Yay! That's awesome. Wisconsin's uh-huh. own. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to say too much yet, but we are really excited to share these generous donations with our students and staff and get everybody listening to some great music. Great. Thanks, Dana. Can't wait. All right, so next we have our Anything Goes recommendations. Um, Brandon, would you like to start us off? So I'm currently reading a book uh, called Travels with the Tangerine. Okay. And it's a book about Ibn Battuta and his travels. He spent about 30 years plus on the road. Um, he was a kind of a contemporary of Marco Polo but was gone a way longer time. And he's not particularly well known in the West despite his achievements. He traveled all over. Um, and yeah, it's a very good read so far. Okay. Excellent. Uh, my my uh, Anything Goes recommendation is West Virginia. Oh, I agree. <laughs> it's my favorite state. It's, it's so awesome. beautiful. Yeah, my, my, wife drove, my wife and I drove through there this, earlier this oh, summer. Yeah. Uh, we were visiting friends in North Carolina and decided to drive. Uh, we spent our, our anniversary evening in Charleston, uh, stayed at this great little bed breakfast. Nice. We walked to like a, a really cool restaurant. Um, afterwards, we, we weren't ready to quite like finish dinner, but we wanted a little something, something. And so I asked our waiter if there, if there was any local bourbon, uh, if any local spirits <laughs> brewed there, because you know, a distillery thing here in Madison sure. is real big. And, and he said, well, it's from Greenbrier County. I'm like, 
close enough. Let's see what you got. It was terrific. We bought a bottle. Oh, awesome. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, so it was, yeah, the capital's really beautiful down there. I mean, Charleston I is like, yep. it's... It's it's an interesting city. It's like the the, the blocks right near the capital are really they're really coming together. There's some cool restaurants and bars and things, and a few blocks further, it's kind of vacant. So, uh, investment opportunity with more time yeah. money than I have for someone with more time money than I have. But um, but yeah, then we went on a we went on a hike the next day, just a state park that was 20 minutes out of Charleston. It was fabulous. It was right. just it's just incredible. Yeah, beautiful state. Yes. Well, my anything goes is. Um, I'm going to go to the Sugar Maple Festival on oh, yeah. August 2nd and 3rd. And that's a, like a, I guess they're, it's a traditional roots, American mm-hmm. roots festival. And yeah. I've never been, and this is the 16th annual. And the reason I'm going is one of my favorite artists, um, Aileen Jewell, is going to play on Saturday. Along with, uh, after her is uh, Larry Sparks and Jeffrey Broussard and the Creole Cowboys. So mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to going to that. It's on Lake Farm county park in south of madison so hopefully it's not going to be too hot and humid yeah (laughs) or too many people right (laughs) hopefully just be a calm crowd so just an announcement that uh our next podcast is a special podcast that we are going to interview dr daniels so stay tuned for that all right so that's it for us today um and it's been an especially fun way to um close out the summer um talking about the summer 50 years ago and thank you so much Jonathan for taking the time to be with us today it's been a lot of fun and uh, the overdue podcast is a production of the Madison College Libraries and the Student Achievement Centers thank you for listening and see you next time